The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. I was a journalist for many years, and you know, journalists love to talk about discoveries and phenomena that are overlooked. largely unknown, undiscovered, and, and reveal them. There's a kind of a pleasure you get from looking for a, something like that and bringing people's attention to it. And that's one of the, the wonderful feelings that I get with an opportunity like tonight to share one of my discoveries in the Dharma. Um, Dhamma Vichaya. Some teachers have said that Dhamma Vichaya could be considered as an equal partner to mindfulness itself. As we heard in the guided meditation, it's the second of seven factors of enlightenment. It comes up directly after awareness itself. And in his comments on Dhammavichaya, the Buddha said that all the subsequent factors of enlightenment arise because of Dhammavichaya. He didn't use this metaphor, but whenever I read him talking about Dhammavichaya, the image of dominoes falling comes to my mind. There's a sense of inevitability. And tonight, as I offer these Dhamma teachings, I wonder if, if you could, if I could, use them, the, te- the teachings, as pointers to something something real that we can discover in here. And um, again, this, this sense of a discovery of something normally overlooked, like how many times have you heard of awareness or mindfulness, sati? And how many times have you heard of dhamma But it's said to be an equal partner. And I know in my experience, like when I came across this teaching, it was like a key that unlocked a big, a big energy, actually, which happens to be the third factor of enlightenment and is the domino that falls after Dhammavichaya. And that's how I experience it. I experience awareness. I experience a desire to dig deeper, and then I feel, feel filled with energy because I want to dig. And so that's, those are the first three factors of enlightenment, and then I'm, I feel confident that I'm on the path. That feels really good. Um, so let me just introduce myself because I'm not here often. Um, my name is Doug McGill, and I have been coming to Common Ground since 2004. And um, I founded the Rochester Meditation Center in Rochester, uh, Minnesota, just down Highway 52 South. You're all invited. Please come anytime. Uh, For uh, 15 years, we met in my house, my family's house in Rochester. This past year, we've moved to um, Assisi Heights, which some of you may recognize as the home of the Franciscan sisters who live in Rochester, there's a very large and beautiful Franciscan monastery there, and we've been meeting there twice a week um, um, since January. I always feel really honored to come here and be with wonderful Dhamma friends. So, 
Thank you. So Dhamma Vichaya, and I thought again I would just offer as straight as I can, as, as undistorted by my own interpretation as I can, just some Dhamma teachings about Dhamma Vichaya and try to wrap it up by, let's say, 8.15 or so. And I hope as I offer these Dhamma teachings, um, you might be thinking about your own experience um, with Dhamma Vichaya and any questions that may come to mind and Maybe we could spend the last 15 minutes or so uh, talking together about it, about Dhanavichaya. So before I dive right in and define it the way the Buddha defined it, a couple of points for context. Well, let me start by mentioning a wonderful, I mean really wonderful, one-and-a-half-minute video on YouTube, um, which I'd be happy to send the link out through through Gabe or Shelley, or you can ask me afterwards. So it's on the Dalai Lama's website, and the the title, you know, it has a section on videos, and there's one video that's, as I mentioned, it's a minute and a half, and it's the title is something like "How to Handle Negative Emotions." Anybody up for that? And. Part of what makes it so this video so delightful is it, it shows a group of young women. They look like they're from India, I'm guessing, and they look like they're in their teens, some in their 20s, and they're gathered around the Dalai Lama, and he's signing their books. And there's one woman up in the front, and you see her just in the few seconds as the video starts. You can see, like, there's, some, there's a look on her face like, I'm never going to be face-to-face with the Dalai Lama again, and I must ask this question. <laughs> He's busy uh, you know, signing the book, so she's trying to determine whether she should interrupt this important activity to ask a question or just let him, and she decides to go for it. And so she just blurts out, do you mind if I ask a question? And the Dalai Lama like, looks up like, and you know how he is, he goes with the flow. <clears throat> he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And she said, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I mean, basically she says like, how do you handle it when negative thoughts and emotions come up in the mind? I mean, that's a perfect question. That's a perfect Dhamma question. And so <clears throat> that's <clears throat> one reason why this uh, video is so fantastic. The other reason is the Dalai Lama gives, in my opinion, a perfect crystallized answer to that question. It's well worth repeated you know, what, uh, you know, viewings and, and thoughts and study. And he says, <clears throat> this is his answer, and I jotted it down here to make sure I get it exactly right. But he said, there are two sources of negative emotions, two sources. One is the self-centered attitude of I, 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 and my, my, my. And he's pointing to himself when he says that. That's the first source of negative emotions. <clears throat> then his second answer is, and of course you'll see the relationship. He says, the second source of negative emotions is and get ready, because there's three really deep, short insights coming. First, we accept reality as it appears. Oh, I gave away all my optical illusions, but you can check that out, because that's why I, I printed them up. They definitely look like diagonal lines, don't they? Okay. Um, so he says, the second source of negative emotions is we accept reality as it appears. And then he says, but nothing exists as it appears. And then he says, all negative emotions are based on appearances. Like, to me, those statements are so charged and so wise. I mean, wow. And I think that when I reflect on those sentences, my mind immediately goes, and honestly, it's hard for me to control the emotions that come up when I reflect like this. I mean, I'm sitting here battling with my emotions, seriously. 
Um, that's just my experience right now. It's because my mind goes right to all the times that I have judged reality based on appearances. And honestly, I feel a lot of regret for that. And I also feel with a certainty that I just heard the truth, you know, and that I, I, I dedicate myself to sticking with that and exploring it and investigating it. So there's Dhammavichayas coming up because I want to get to the bottom of this myself. It's like, oh, the path is clear. I need to understand what's being said. So to me, that's a nice introduction to Dhammavichaya, is um, the, um, the Dalai Lama's, Lama's answer to this young lady. And he does finish up by saying, wisdom is the antidote to the self-centered attitude. And of course, you can see the connection, right? Because the self, these two things are interlocking. The, the self-centered attitude is the first source of negative emotion. Based on what he said is the second source of negative emotion, it's clear that the first one arises as a result of not seeing reality clearly. In other words, we think and we go through life with this sense that it's all about this body and this mind. And we are wired um, to, for survival to think that way and to perceive the world that way. And most of our daily activities and thoughts are naturally aligned with this sense of I. And it's reflected in our language. I wake up, I take a shower, I brush my teeth, I eat breakfast, I go to work, I talk, I, 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 I. And that's just, a, just one example of, of how ingrained the sense of I is, but there's also just the sense, right? As we go through life, it's like, well, yes, there's all these other people, but this is the important one. And um, the Dalai Lama is saying that's the source of negative emotions. And it's based on a misperception of reality, of the way things are. So that opens up a path, and then he says wisdom is the antidote. So wisdom, then, is seeing things as they are. And so clearly, then, wisdom, uh, you could say, is the goal of practice, is to develop wisdom. And Dhammavichaya is one of the ways to do that, very important way. And I think the only other thing I'd mentioned by way of introduction to this topic of Dhammavichaya is to point out that um, it's as as it as it sounds investigation of the nature of reality it's 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 first of all it's com communicated through concepts and words and uh there's no doubt that there's a very heavy component of concept in this investigation cuz for instance questions like even a simple question like what is this is a concept but it's pointing us to something that's beyond a concept it's when we ask the question what is this it's, it's asking us to put the words down for a moment and to jump right into reality and to feel it, to experience it, not through words, but through, the, like you could say, the savor or the taste or the experience, like jumping into a cold lake or taking a bite of an apple. There's no words that can ex explain that. It's, it's just a, it's, it's a, well, in Buddhist terms, it's an insight. So what we want to be ready for when we... Um, when we jump into the topic of investigation of reality is for that. It's like using um, our own methods, including concepts and thoughts, to, to dive right into it, the essence of things, which is not a thought, but it's a pure experience. Um, so... Uh, the Buddha defines, he says there's three different types of wisdom, and Dhammavichaya is one of those three. So again, to fully 
understand the context of Dhammavichaya, it's very helpful to go through the teaching of what the three types of wisdom are and to see how Dhammavichaya fits into that. And what I'll do is I'll just right now real briefly summarize each uh, type of wisdom and then we can go back and look at each one in more detail, especially the second one, which includes Dhammavichaya. So the three types of wisdom are first, uh, the Buddha called Suttamaya Panya. And uh, you'll recognize the root word sutta or story in that word Suttamaya Panya. Panya is wisdom, and it's wisdom that comes from learning from an external source. It's like uh, listening to Dhamma. In our age, it means reading books, Dhamma books, watching YouTubes would definitely be included if it's a good one, not a cat one. Um, but who knows, maybe even some good cat ones would have some wisdom in there. I'm sure that would, because cats are wise. Uh, but you get the idea. It's like, you know, uh, the first type of wisdom is what we call book learning, essentially. And it, it does involve some memorization and involves a conscious effort to bring in some concepts, some symbols, because we share wisdom with each other through symbolic language. And uh, there's a vocabulary. And if it's wisdom, all the different elements of the vocabulary line up in a certain way with reality. And it's the way we talk to each other about reality is through these concepts. So at Dhamma itself, the way the Buddha taught it, right? It's got four of the four noble truths, the noble eightfold past, the seven factors of awakening, the three refuges, the ten fetters, and, you know, those things. And the Buddha is saying, hey, if you want to learn how to get free in life, one good way to start, the one I recommend, is to memorize those lists because they are a map of reality. And once you have a map, you can go anywhere. And so just downloading, you could say, the, these, these raw facts, uh, very helpful. Um, the second type of wisdom is jintamaya panya. The root word there is C-I-N-T, jint. Um, It's the same root as citta. Um, And it means wisdom that comes from using our own faculties of intellect, logic, and reason. And so you could think of it in this way. It's like that first type of knowledge comes from outside, and we just download it in. And um, the second type of knowledge comes from uh, working with those concepts, always trying to relate them to reality, but you, you know, there's a testing process of, oh, the Buddha says this word relates to this experience, and, it will, and, and do I find that to be true? And also he says if you work with your breath and your body in a certain way through steps that another thing will arise, and then you go through the steps and you check out and you see if that other thing arises. And so there's this testing process that goes on, and you also look for logical inconsistencies in what the Buddha is saying. Um, and, you know, we just apply our God-given talent for reason, analysis, and, and, uh, and intellection. And that's the second form of uh, wisdom, and uh, Dhammavichaya fits into that category. It's uh, investigation of the nature of reality. It's primarily in that second group our second type of wisdom. And the third type of wisdom, as you've probably figured out or recognize now, is, is direct experience or insight. It's the ta- getting the t- actual taste of what of, of, of reality, of, of like, like, what is this really, so that we're not deceived by the appearance of reality. And once we get a direct taste of it, we'll never... Re- we'll never relate to this body, this mind, or this world the same way because we've seen beyond the illusion. Um, You might take a quick look at your uh, optical illusion. Those are parallel lines. And the way to to see that is to look at at it, uh, hold the paper up like this way and look at the paper like this rather than this. Just look at it right over the top. You'll see they're, yeah, and do it the long way. You'll see they're parallel. Isn't that amazing? 
<coughs> so um, these three different types of wisdom. Book learning, reason and analysis, and direct insight. Let me just say a little bit more about the, the first one, Suttamaya Panya. Um, I mentioned Sayada Utejaniya in the guided meditation. He was reading a book on computer processing and artificial intelligence recently. He's, a, he's like in his late 50s. He's very much with us. He's very alive and, and very much alive. And, and he was reading recently a book on, uh, as I mentioned, artificial intelligence. And, and he saw that the, the person who was writing that book actually said there's three levels in artificial intelligence. And the first one is just the gathering of raw data and putting it into the database. And it, it, it's just, you know, you get a lot of data points. So you, you can think of it as like a map. You know, you, you know uh, Rochester's here, Pine Island is here, Zombrota is here, Cannon Falls is here, Highway 52 is here, 26th Street is here, etc. And and um, Sayadaw is also always saying that what that the function of awareness is to basically gather data, so that you know if we go around and we notice, we'll, we will notice that it's just naturally happening that awareness is gathering data. Well, usually, it's gathering data for the purpose of, of survival. That's the way we're wired um, evolutionarily, um, and then when we need it. For survival purposes, you know, you may have noticed that, like, just just automatically will will behave and act in certain ways that optimize our chances for survival, and that's all based on the fact that awareness is constantly downloading data that's relevant to that activity, and then it actually produces, without our conscious involvement, thoughts and behaviors that are consistent with physical survival, and that's just a large part of who and what we are. The spiritual process is in recognition of the fact that that's not enough to make us happy. Human beings, for whatever reason, are not happy with physical survival. I mean, once we get our needs met on a physical level, which most of us in this room have, most of us in Minneapolis and you know the developed world have, the next thing we're looking for is fulfillment, uh, purpose in life, um, you know, Relationships going better to the point that um, there's some kind of transcendence. And uh, most of all, this whole thing about knowing who, we, who and what we really are in recognition of the fact that deep down we all know at some level that this is not the way it is. It's not the way it looks. But what is it really? So most of us are pretty clear when we just settle down that this isn't the way it is, but most of us haven't taken the path to come to a real succinct and tangible insight, third form of wisdom, of the way things actually are. But that's the path we're on. Anyway, so there's this first Suttamaya Panya is just downloading data. And, um, and then there's the second uh, level um, in artificial intelligence, that was this, this analogy that Saida was mentioning, that once all the data points are in there and, a, and, a, and, um, and that proto-AI system is set up with programs, the data starts to interact with each other and cause and effects things start to happen and, and connection points are made. And there's an internal process by which um, the whole system, the information in that system starts to go beyond just a, a mass of chaotic data points, but structure starts to appear. And... Um, and processes start to happen in which uh, uh, desired outcomes are produced. And at a third level, uh, it's like the system starts to know what it doesn't know and to seek out knowledge and to get to bring in that knowledge and to activate itself, and it starts to know itself in a certain way. Not in the way consciousness does, but within the system, it starts to do things that are eerily, you know, uh, like actual awareness. And I think that we're starting to see that in our daily lives. I mean, when we're on Amazon or Facebook or whatever, and it's like, what, is this thing reading my mind? Why is it showing me the product I was just sort of hoping I would see, you know, or this type of thing. 
That's happening a lot these days. It's eerie. But that's that inside us analysis that was that third type. And, you know, a similar thing does happen in our own being, right? Because as I was saying, it's like awareness is constantly gathering data, sifting through data, and making decisions that we're just unconsciously fulfilling in order to make this thing survive. So you could think of this whole spiritual path that we're on as we would like that same, same thing to happen, but towards the goal of knowing ourselves as we really are. Not unconsciously so that we just physically survive, but so that we can get a momentum going to the point where we're actually transcending all of those unconscious compulsive behaviors that just satisfy our physicality, but starts to direct us towards who and what we really are. And especially in towards, because we do recognize that there's something that's dysfunctional with the human being so far, because if we're all walking around thinking like we're 7 billion separate people, that's 7 billion different potential conflicts that are arising between people. And it's just a war of all against all unless we develop a consciousness that does recognize what is incontrovertibly the fact at an intellectual level but not yet fully known directly and spontaneously, we need to know in our very fiber that we're all part of one. And to hurt you is to hurt me. For me to hurt anything in this existence is actually a self-harm. Yeah? And but we need a path that takes us to a direct recognition of that so we can start acting that way and not blow ourselves up. That's the spiritual path, as I understand it, and as the Buddha, I believe, was laying it out. So starts actually with book learning, and just love that Buddha because he's just so practical. You know, It's like, well, get the books if you want to <laughs> you know, get started on the path. And, and you know, memorize a few things. I know especially in the early years when I was teaching meditation in the early years and actually studying it myself, I had a little bit of resistance. Like, oh, I have to memorize eight steps. I have to memorize four steps. Meanwhile, I'd spent 20 years in school memorizing all kinds of things that didn't matter whatsoever to me, right, at, at all, except to supposedly make a living, which I'm not doing. <laughs> um, certainly not teaching Dhamma. Uh, you know, and meanwhile, there's just this what, 75 things, 70, 65 things, whatever. It's a small handful of things to memorize towards my fulfillment as a spiritual being. Gosh, that sounds like quite a deal to me. You know? Okay, um, so, so let's talk, let's talk uh, now about the Chintamaya Panya, which is the second uh, type of wisdom. This, is, um, this includes Dhammavichaya. It's wisdom that comes from thinking, reflection, and intellectual uh, parsing, always in relationship to our experience, right? It's not like we're, trying, we're not trying to build an intellectual model, but we're using the concepts that the Buddha has offered to point to what's the real living thing in here. So we can see the relationships, and we can start to recognize that when we do certain things, we get suffering, and we do certain other things, we get peace and freedom and creativity and joy and energy, and boy, we'd rather be doing those. But it does take a period of lining up the concepts with the actual experience, and that's, the, that's this uh, Jintamaya Panya step. I'll give you an example. For, uh, so I'll bet most of us have seen a Nova Science special at some point on quantum physics or um, astrophysics or uh, just basic atomic science. And so we're all familiar. And just from probably our, our education and schooling, we're, we all recognize that atoms, which are the fundamental building block of reality, are accepted by science as 99 point, and then put 13 nines after it, empty. That's that's the atom, and we're made of atoms. So that means that this thing is 99 and put 13.9% empty, this one. And yet, it feels solid, it looks solid, that's the appearance. Remember what the Dalai Lama said. Negative emotions are based on appearances, and things are not as they appear. So, And then intellectually, we can understand, gosh, wow, the scientists have 
used the Large Hadron Collider and many other things, and they've determined that atoms are mostly, you know, really mostly empty, uh, except for this little tiny pinprick of something that they say is solid. By the way, which no one has ever found, even with the Large Hadron Collider, they still haven't found substance. They're still looking for it. So even that last point, 13 zeros, one, that still hasn't been found either. So we, we, we have this intellectual understanding, but how many of us have got to a point where as we walk down the street, we're experiencing life that way? That's a different thing. Um, and so to understand it intellectually and also to be drawn towards it in our, in our experience, like we want to get to the bottom of this, we want to study it more, and especially want to go more in the direction of finding a way to feeling it and experiencing it, that's Dhammavichaya. That's the investigation of the nature of reality in relationship to our, our deep wish to transcend suffering and to, know, and to know freedom and joy in this life and oneness. So that's, that's an example of uh, Dhammavichaya, um, this, this intellectual knowing of emptiness versus, for most of us, the still not tangible, quite tangible. Uh, I wanted to just offer a couple of lines directly from the Buddha where he was talking about Dhammavichaya. And uh, just to give you a sense of how fine-grained the, it is when the Buddha talks about Dhammavichaya. Uh, he says, monks, a monk who is skilled in seven cases and a triple investigator, he loves those lists, is called, in this Dhamma and discipline, a consummate one, one who has fully lived the holy life, the highest kind of person. And then he, then he defines the seven cases and the triple investigator. So the seven cases are, and how bhikkhus, or how nunks, is a monk skilled in seven cases? Well, here, monks, a monk understands form, its origin, its, sens- its cessation, and the way leading to its ces- cessation. He understands the gratification, the danger, and the escape. Those are the seven cases. And that was like when we were doing our guided meditation, when we're looking, let's say, at the sensation of the body, we were doing a little bit of that. We were doing like, well, what is this form, really? And does the, does the sensation, if we really look at it is, it, is it, is it stable or is it coming and going? How long does it last? And do we notice that in some cases, if it's a pleasant sensation, we're doing some internal grasping? That would be the danger. And do we... Do, can we find within us the natural release from that grasping, which would be the escape? And the triple investigator um, is understanding um, experience in terms of the four elements, the five senses, actually the six senses in Buddhism, and dependent origination, which is the Buddha's understanding of the arising and passing away of suffering. Um, but the Buddha says on a number of occasions that, you know, sometimes it's sufficient. You don't necessarily, it almost sounds like you have to, like, you have to, like, nail every single one of these and go completely to the end with each one in order to ever have a chance of getting there or being consummate. There are other times when it's pretty clearly stated that if you really go deep on even just one of these elements, you'll penetrate right to the heart of reality and you'll have insight and you'll have release. That's important to understand. So I offered that as just a, an example of this, this man was almost scientific or super scientific in his approach to you know, really insisting on observation and making sure that the conclusions we reach about reality are based on real observation and not wishes and not judgments, but like what things really are. He was really uh, disciplined on that. Um, and then um, let me offer just, and then we can then we can break into some discussion. I hope. Uh, let me offer three uh, points about Dhammavichaya that were offered by Sayada Utejaniya, who who is one of the teachers that I know. There are not too many, but he puts Dhammavichaya right at the center of his teaching about uh, mindfulness and meditation. He stresses it a lot, 
uh, arguably, it's it's really it's at the very least an indispensable way that he a part of how he teaches. Um, it's something he mentions frequently in every in every talk, pretty much. Um, so one of the points that he makes, and it's reflected in the, the title of one of his books, he says, "Awareness alone is not enough." That's the title of one of his books, and what he's what he's saying there is that in his experience as a monk in Burma, and also one who now has spent 15, 20 years traveling through the world and meeting yogis from many countries, that he has noticed that sometimes practice is oriented towards feeling the wonderful, happy, relaxed uh, state of samadhi and sort of ending the practice right there. Like we come here and we watch our breath and we settle down and it feels good to come back home. Absolutely it does. And a sense of joy comes up and settledness and clarity and those are all fantastic. What the... what uh, Saida is saying here is that in terms of the entire practice, once we hit stability and clarity of mind, practice is just beginning in a sense. Now it's time to do some investigation. Um, it's always relaxed. So investigation doesn't mean like a dog with a bone necessarily, although sometimes that's not too bad actually to be a dog with a bone. But generally speaking, it's a relaxed, interested investigation that the mind itself has. It's not something that's imposed. It's more like you discover within yourself the mind wants to know about itself. It wants to heal itself. And this is a perfectly natural process, just like if we cut our finger. The body just goes about getting all the different elements from the bloodstream and the the system and shoots it right to the finger to heal the finger. And it, it just heals the finger. And our mind will do the same thing with our mental injuries too, as long as we don't gum up the process with our thoughts. That's the problem, yeah? So it's really like keeping the field of injury clear. That's what meditation is, so that all the natural antibodies, natural emotional antibodies and spiritual antibodies can come up and manifest towards emotional healing. That's what we're trying to do. And they are released as soon as they are known. So like awareness activates what it knows. So if awareness notices a natural tendency and desire to investigate and to to see clearly to the bottom of things, if we notice that, it will feed that and and the other factors of the enlightenment will be triggered and the healing process will happen naturally, internally, emotionally, just as it happens in the body, physically. So he's saying after samadhi, or he's saying a good samadhi or even a just a little more samadhi than you had before, that's a good starting point for, for getting the rest of the process going. And, and um, that's when you bring in Dhamma, Vichaya. He does say this, too. Um, we've noticed that, and we've made clear then, that wisdom is, in, is really the, mm, it's the goal of meditation in the sense that it's the antidote to ignorance and delusion, which is the source of suffering. So when we see things the way they really are, that aligns the whole system towards health and towards functioning and not being in opposition to reality. And what Saida is saying is that there is something about this second quality that arises almost instantaneously with awareness that's kind of like curiosity or desire to understand, desire to know, and that this is a manifestation of wisdom itself. So that, for instance, when we ask a question of our own experience, that is... That is wisdom that's beginning to manifest and we should go with it. We want to be careful and he's, he actually spends a lot of time talking about what is skillful questioning versus unskillful questioning and it kind of boils down to usually it's just all you need is one or at the most two questions to kind of keep you, keep you coming back to what your actual experience is rather than getting into a proliferation where you're building up a mental model. Um, but there's this cu- curiosity is um, something that what I'm calling curiosity is something that you really want to try to notice as a natural uh, quality of the mind. So he, this is a quote from his. He says, it's only when some kind of wisdom is present that de- um, the defilements, meaning desire, aversion, and delusion, are not able to sneak into the mind. One kind of wisdom that must be present in the mind is curiosity and interest, a wholehearted desire to really understand. 
And let me just uh, finish this little kind of intro on Dhamma Vichaya by mentioning another one of the Buddha's lists, which is quite wonderful, I think, especially number two. He says, um, this list is a list of seven, and he says, here's how to cultivate Dhamma Vichaya, which Sayadaw uh, translates as intelligent awareness. And the first way to cultivate Dhamma Vichaya as a real vital quality of our consciousness is repeatedly asking Dhamma questions, talking about topics related to Dhamma nature, investigating them, and thinking about them. So we're doing that right now. We're, we're cultivating this quality, which, when it comes up and is strong, starts the dominoes falling towards liberation. So we're doing the right thing right now. And we'll have, we can ask questions in just a minute. And the second one, uh, the second uh, of the methods to cultivate Dhammachaya is cleaning our possessions, both external and internal. That's a good one. Are we hanging on to something internal that we don't need to? Time to let it go. But what I love about this one is he's also talking about cleaning house, literally. Just like cleaning the attic, cleaning the basement, going to this mini storage and just selling as much of that as you can because you're paying 150 a month for that stuff that's just sitting there. <laughs> he's talking about getting rid of your physical material possessions because they're just expensive and a burden. And that's so endearing to me that he's thinking about it in such practical ways. He says, clearing our possessions, both external and internal, brings clarity of mind. Clarity of mind is a condition for wisdom to arise. Number three is learning to balance the five spiritual faculties. That's another Dharma talk, but the five spiritual faculties are faith, energy, mindfulness, stability of mind, which is samadhi, and wisdom. And you want those balanced. And number four is avoiding the company of people who do not have wisdom. And this was really important in the, in the Buddha's days because there weren't, there weren't books, there weren't Dhamma books. It was like, it was with people. And a person was like a great book, a person who was wise was like, with a great, was, was like a great book, you know. So you wanted to hang out with them. Um, and number six is contemplating deep wisdom, contemplating on ref, or reflecting on deeper things. And number seven is having the desire to grow in wisdom. Which I think we all have. So that's my little intro on the topic of Dhamma Vichaya. What's coming up for you guys? In that either in the talk or in the in the meditation that we did. Um, I'm originally from New York and that's significant because in nineteen eighty three I was part of a meditation group that uh, had an audience with the Dalai Lama at the Wall of Astoria. And um, like the woman you spoke about, um, I held the door open for all the rest of my friends to go in, and there was no place for me to sit. So I sat in front of the Dalai Lama. And at some point, there was this period when nobody was saying anything. And I thought to myself, as that woman did, if I'm going to ask this question, this is the only time I'm ever going to have. Right on. <laughs> and so I sa- the problem was that I had been hurt by someone and it was carrying this hurt around. Yeah. And so I asked him, what do you do when you can't forgive someone? Mm. And at first he didn't get the full uh, interpretation, so he turned to his uh, translator. That translator explained to him and he looked at me and he smiled. Remember, sitting right in front of him. He says, that person is gone. The only person you hurt is yourself. Mm. And that was a huge, huge lesson. Yeah. It took me a while still to learn it, but it was so fundamental and so simple. Yeah. It was great. The other thing I would talk about is samadhi. The first time, I think, that I had the experience of samadhi, I realized right away this is really special. I don't need to look for it every time. You know, when it comes, it'll be wonderful. And I knew that if I latched onto it, that would be the wrong thing altogether. 
And since then, I've had other experiences of samadhi, not as many, mm -hmm. but the realization in the moment of it was that I, I don't want to hold on to this, as beautiful as it is. Yeah. But I want to, in this moment, I, I recognize that it's wonderful and elusive, but, and I don't need to hold on to it. Right. Yeah, thanks for that, Robert. The quickest way to dispel samadhi is to try to grasp it and keep it. That'll disappear immediately. Yeah. And it takes a little bit of noticing to notice that. That's a good investigation right there. Thank you for your talk. Um, my name is Wyatt. Hey, Wyatt. Can you speak to or any experiences you've had where the three types of learning contradict each other, particularly where maybe direct experience, I guess in my experience, direct experiences in, in some cases contradicted mm -hmm. formal teaching or even the logic that I sort of presuppose at the time. But I've also had the experience where formal teaching and logic may be, um, I don't know, I'm so filled with delusion that, that maybe I am witnessing something or, or experiencing something, but I'm just sort of bouncing off of it because I'm, I'm in a place where, uh -huh. <laughs> I don't know, I guess my direct experience is so filled with delusion or something like that. But I don't uh -huh. know if, if you have any um, insight into when those kind of contradict each other or that the process of the realignment of those potentially. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it's a wonderful question. Uh, my experience with that is that the inconsistencies that are noticed are very important to uh, first to notice and then to express to a teacher, uh, a good teacher, who can um, either help you confirm that that it's a uh, that it's an inconsistency, uh, a logical inconsistency, and and um, uh, or you can see that your mind was making it into a problem that it really isn't or wasn't, you know, because of, because of delusion. Um, and um, that it is, you know, it's like what, what Donovan Chaya is talking about is that this process, and I'm going to go to the dog with the bone thing, is of like if you have problems with meditation or if you think like instructions aren't bringing you to the point that, you know, you would like or that's not working for you or you see logical inconsistencies in what the Buddha says, you know, it's very important to ask those questions and to, and to get them resolved. Because otherwise they stay as blocks and they are doubt, the fifth hindrance, you know? And the point is to go after them and, and see if you can dissolve them and transcend them. And it's this questioning process. So it's like embrace those uh, inconsistencies because a lot of them will arise. And good Dhamma questions are often like that. Um, and they lead to good uh, Dhamma discussions. And especially when there's a good teacher, a kind of... Um, uh, larger intelligence can emerge within which what previously seemed like a contradiction isn't, or what seemed like a blockage isn't. So that's one level that I'd answer the question, uh, your question, Wyatt. And then the other one would be um, that there are skillful and unskillful ways to ask questions and to use this function uh, on the path. And I touched on it real briefly. Um, but for example, just for instance, the word investigation connotes to our conventional mind that we use the rational thought process to pursue something until there are no logical inconsistencies left, and therefore we have a new kind of model of reality that we can use, and, and the questioning process is just to continue until all of those are erased. But, in le but if we're not careful, then we're always in the realm of just kind of building a, a logically consistent model as opposed to reality, which is not logically consistent. This reality is not. This is too crazy and wild for any logic to explain it. So if you hold this whole thing to the uh, standard of it must be logically consistent, that in itself is a problem. Um, and that... Uh, you, you want to hold the question in a certain way that it's super alive for you and that you're not looking too hard for a complete answer. That's a very important part of the process. Like We're not actually asking a question to get a whole and complete and solid answer right now. We're using a question to, bring us, to try to bring us closer 
to experiencing what really is. And that's not a logically consistent thing or not. That's a taste or a flavor or an insight, right? And, um, and so this whole thing about noticing logical inconsistencies with the Dharma, it's like, you know, over hundreds of years now, people have looked for logical inconsistencies, and it seems to be a set of teachings that just keeps dissolving those doubts, so to speak, and expanding awareness to include more and more in a real satisfying way. So it's, and as we see that, that builds confidence and faith, and um, that's kind of like the skillful way to ask questions. Um, so I guess I'd answer, that, that's my best, my best, uh, yeah, I think I would, I would answer your question no, on, on those two levels. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, in the back, right? Can you pass the microphone back there? Thank you. My name is Cindy. Hi, Cindy. Hi. Um, could you speak more about faith? Was that the first out it of is. the five faith? It is the first of the five uh, guiding faculties of mind, yeah. My understanding of faith in this tradition is that, for me, a more satisfactory translation of sada, uh, faith, is trust or confidence. And the reason I prefer trust or confidence for sada as a translation is, to me, faith is a word that uh, connotes a belief in something that we have not yet experienced. That's why we have faith in it. And, um, and so in that sense, all beliefs are faiths. Because I believe it because I haven't experienced it. You know? That's why I believe it. And you're way out on a limb that way. If you haven't experienced something, but you just believe it, um, you're identifying, you, it's very easy to identify with that belief and to hold with that belief, but you have no idea whether it's related to reality or not. Whereas sada is something that builds up over time as a result of testing what the Buddha is offering in terms of here's how this internal mechanism works. If you do this, this will happen. If you do that, that will happen. If you explore this, you will find certain things, and here are things that you can explore and find. And each time you say, well, the, the Buddha has offered what seems to be a very interesting and complete map of this mind-body system, I think I'll explore. And as you go and explore and find out one thing after another, in terms of what he said you'd find, and then sometimes you find cause and effect happens the way you suggested, and the characteristic of this, of what you notice, every time you notice that what he says correlates with your experience, you build a little bit of trust in, that, in the whole teaching. You know? And then you're able to open a little bit more, even to the point where you let your guard down and kind of throw yourself into the whole thing with a kind of undefended way, where you expose more and more of yourself because your trust comes more and more, all the way to the point of letting go of your, of your idea of self and being scared because, like, what's life going to be? But ultimately, that's what's asked of us. And if your trust is enough, you may get to the point where I can let go of Cindy, right? Yeah. And, and for a minute, and then for five minutes, and then the whole day, or who knows? Like that. And that's trust. Because it's based on what you have discovered to be true within yourself. That's real trust. That, and that's real confidence in the teaching that builds up over time. Yeah, I think we have time for a couple more. Yeah. Yeah, my name's Dave. And... Um, one inconsistency that I've been working with is uh, some teachings I've heard about choiceless awareness or mindfulness uh, is enough. And uh, it just seems that I like this investigation as equal part of awareness and that my practice, I felt, was getting too passive. And, I, and that's why I started to try to read some more about this. And it mm-hmm. just... It just and it may, it may be just where I'm at with my practice in that uh, choiceless awareness just seems to be a passive thing for me, mm-hmm. and and uh, and you were speaking of a more what I see as an active awareness, and it, it mm-hmm. and I don't know if that is that choiceless awareness. Do you see it that way, or how do you see that? I think that that phrase and that instruction is 
super helpful as a staging practice. And it, it, it suggests um, you know, just being open like we did in the guided meditation. Choiceless awareness is like not discriminating, but if we hear a sound in the street, if we hear a cough, if we notice a feeling of boredom or of uh, anger or anything like that, we don't make a choice like I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow myself to experience this and not that. You know, it's very important to have choiceless awareness to just like whatever awareness is noticing, especially at the subtler levels, I'm open to it and allow it and am interested in it. And this is like opening to that data gathering process that I was mentioning. You don't want to be, if you want to have a good sense of what reality is, you do not want to be accepting some things and not others, just, for instance, based on what's pleasant or what's unpleasant, what you like or what you don't, or anything like that. You want to just open the doors of awareness and let all the data flood in. And that's what choiceless awareness is good for. Uh, but, but, yeah. But I, maybe I'm just misunderstanding the choiceless awareness now. Okay. I, uh, I'll have to think about that some more. It just seems that, uh, well, awareness, you know, it has to be, uh, at some point, there's a guide or a dispassion with it that's not, you know, uh, there, it's, it just seems like there's so much more involved w- with uh, awareness than, and choiceless awareness just seems, you know, maybe I just don't understand the process. It just seems like it's just, you know, it, it, it doesn't have all these other things associated with it. That, yeah. You know, awareness alone is not enough. I, I would agree with that. That's why I said it's a good first step because you're opening to let all the data in, but that's only the first of the three types of wisdom. There's still the second type, which is once the data comes in, you start to notice things like cause and effect. You take an interest, and that's, that does take a little more energy. That's the third step on the, on, the, on the seven factors. It's like the energy to keep going, to keep asking questions, do the, all the inconsistencies, burn right through them. You know, Not to prove it logically, but to actually experience an answer and to keep going and to keep going. And then to notice, how does the mind feel as I'm on this path of noticing and questioning and staying open and learning? How am I feeling as I learn? How am I feeling as I learn? You know? And then that, that's going beyond choiceless awareness to a certain type of discrimination. This is, by the way, inherent in the word vichaya, dhamma vichaya, is a discernment. It's a sorting through. It's a noticing what's wholesome versus unwholesome and what's a cause and what's an effect. So this is going beyond choiceless awareness in a way that I hope is getting to your question because choiceless awareness, I think, maybe sometimes is offered or at least is interpreted by the people who get the instruction as that's the way we should walk around all the time. Is like maybe it's an end state, for instance. But the way Saira Utejaniya teaches it, and I think as the Buddha teaches it, no, that's just the first step. Yeah, and then we go on, and ultimately, wisdom comes in and does suggest, usually in a little whisper voice, it would be better if you do this than that. It's like, it comes to the point of action, saying this would be a good action, this would be not so good an action, and then you, you bring in that element of actually working in the world and doing things in the world, making decisions. Yeah, maybe this will be the last one. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming. Yeah. I'm grateful. Oh, thank you. My name is Megan. Hi, um, Megan. I was sort of blown away by by this thing because yeah. I was thinking about these negative thoughts, and I'm like, oh, whoa, that was a delusion. And then I had this little curiosity come into my head in the form of a question, which is, wait, is that true for positive thoughts too? Uh-huh. Like, I could have this really positive feeling. Mm-hmm. Is it just as likely that that's a Illusion or yeah. a delusion. <laughs> right, yeah. It is. It is, yeah. Positive thoughts can be just as delusory as negative ones, especially because when there's a positive thought, there'll be some grasping. There, there's often some grasping. Like, well, this is the thought which will free me forever. Well, not really. It might have freed you for that one moment in relationship to that one issue or problem, but life immediately goes on to the next and the next. And wisdom always arises in relation to what's happening now, not before. But you can get really graspy to positive thoughts, even, even more than negative thoughts in some ways. So, yeah, got to be careful with the positive ones also. Okay, so I think that, that's, that's it. Um, did you have some announcements, Jean? Yes, okay. yes. So um, thank you, Doug. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your with, oh. wisdom with us. Thank this you for really inviting wonderful. me. Really wonderful.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.